This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Honor the victims, celebrate the heroes. That's Genius Book Publishing's approach to true crime. Covering some of the most important cases in crime worldwide, our books never glorify the killers. From the Melissa Witt case all the way to the Golden State Killer and the Zodiac, if you're looking for solid, meticulously researched, thrilling true crime, look no further than Genius Book Publishing's catalog of titles. Visit GeniusTrueCrime.com for the best true crime books available. Also available on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, and iTunes. Hi, I'm LaDonna Humphrey. And I'm Alicia Lockhart. We have some exciting news to share with you. We're headed to CrimeCon UK in London. That's right. We'll be attending the ultimate true crime event in London this summer on June 10th and 11th. CrimeCon UK promises to be an exciting event with over 50 hours of true crime content in areas such as cold cases, immersive experiences, the opportunity to learn from experts, and so much more. And speaking of so much more, while we're in London, we're also going to be attending the inaugural True Crime Award. We are so excited to attend the awards alongside dozens of other amazing advocates. And we're also honored to announce that the Deep Dark Secrets podcast has been shortlisted for Best Indie Podcast. Not only that, but LaDonna has also been shortlisted for Best New True Crime Writer for her book, The Girl I Never Knew. I am so excited. Me too. Keep a close eye on our social media for updates about CrimeCon UK and the True Crime Awards. And we'll see everyone in London. Lockhart. And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets, the podcast that shines a light in some really dark places. Today, we remember 25-year-old Joanna Yates, a talented landscape architect who was murdered by a death fetish predator in December of 2010. Joanna lived with her boyfriend, Greg, in Bristol, England, UK. Greg and Joanna were both architects and had met when they worked for the same firm back in 2008. By 2009, their relationship was pretty serious, and they had relocated together for some work from Winchester to Bristol. They were living in a flat that was part of a large house that had been subdivided into flats. It was part of the Clifton suburb, and they were extremely in love, Alicia, and easily would have become married, according to Greg. They were so happy to be building a life together, and had even gotten a cat together. How sweet is that? That's the next step. You get pets and then marriage and then kids. I know, you get a pet and that's serious. Sometimes even more serious than a wedding ring, I think. People take their pets pretty seriously. 
But regardless, it was bliss. They were very, very, very happy together. And Greg went away for the weekend to see his family. And that was in December. And so while Greg was, you know, gone, Joanna busied herself and just tried to be distracted with life because, you know, she's missing Greg. And on December 17th, she went out for drinks after work with some friends. And on the way home, she bought herself a pizza. It is believed that she arrived home around 8.30 p.m. with her pizza in tow. And that's the last time, Alicia, anyone knew for sure where Joanna had been. I don't like that at all. I don't either. It's sad. On December 18th, Greg was starting to feel a little worried. It was the last day of his trip, and he noticed that Joanna wasn't responding to any of his text messages. I mean, that would be a red flag for my friends and family. You know how often you and I talk. If I just stopped responding to you, I think you would know that a fetisher got me. Yeah, especially if you were that in love, you know, like this is not normal for Joanna to just not respond to Greg. Right. Not at all. And so he was worried. And so he was very eager to get home and check on her. And at 8 p.m. on December 19th, 2010, he arrived back at the flat and Joanna wasn't there. He continued to call and text her. And honestly, my stomach just drops knowing this. But her phone did ring from within the flat. So it was there. It was inside of her coat pocket. And that's, I mean, honestly, that's a gut-wrenching clue because she didn't have her coat. And it was like below zero degrees that week. Where had she gone without a coat? That's pretty scary. Yeah, she definitely didn't leave in that weather without a coat. No, no, not alive anyway. Her purse was also still on the flat. And Joanna, as most women would, would not have left home without her coat, her purse, her phone, and her keys. So, of course, this is like a huge red flag. And to make matters worse, their cat was also acting very weird. He seemed neglected. He was very hungry. And Greg was really, really scared at this point. So he reported Joanna missing around midnight when he got home. So he'd been home, I think I said about 8 o'clock. He discovers all this. He's scared. And so around midnight, he calls the police. Friends and family immediately begin searching for her, and they search for days. She was listed as a missing person, and Greg and her family and friends, they were determined to find Joanna. That is so scary. I can't imagine, like, I just picture him being in the flat and calling her phone, and the first moment when he realizes that it's, like, ringing in there with him, like, oh, it just gives me chills because... It's just hopeless at that point. You're like, there's no way I'm going to find them without this phone. Like, maybe it's just because we're in the true crime industry, but my mind immediately goes to murder if somebody is missing and all their stuff is in their home. That's a nightmare for me to think that I would be looking for my husband or one of my best friends and I'm in their house. I'm in my house and I'm calling them and the phone rings. I mean, you would just know then and there that this is not going to end well. Yeah. And so this is so sad. It's like the opposite of a Christmas miracle. But it was on Christmas Day that Joanna's body was found in the snow. I know that it's good to know what happened to your loved one and to be able to start to process and heal. But finding Joanna on Christmas Day, that had to be so difficult for all of them. Oh, it would ruin Christmas for the rest of your life. It really would. And I'm also, I'm realizing there's so many cases that do happen near Christmas. I wonder what the deal is with that. I don't know. I've thought about that. I was looking into some things with the Jean Benet murder not long ago, and I was thinking about that very thing. 
And one of the most common factors that happens around the holidays is like people become incredibly depressed and agitated and angry and emotional because it's the holiday. Maybe they're dealing with mental health issues. You know, they're away from family. Maybe they don't have family and friends. And I think that that is all a contributing factor to someone that could be experiencing heightened pressure around the holidays and feeling lonely. And then they act out maybe a dark fantasy or they want to hurt other people. For what it's worth, that's something I've actually been looking at. So I think that's pretty interesting. That is interesting. And I could see how like if you had seasonal depression and you were a death fetisher, those two things combined would not be great for other people. Yeah, absolutely. Joanna's body had been left on the roadside about three miles away from her flat. And... So at this point, she's obviously not a missing person anymore. She is a murdered person. The police go back through the details they have. They go back to her flat and they are just looking with fine tooth comb, trying to get some clues as to what could have happened to make Joanna leave her flat. They notice that there's no signs at all of forced entry. And so they start to think about that. And they think about how either this was somebody that knew her and she willingly let them in or, you know, it was somebody who was already in this subdivided building, somebody on the inside already. So they start to hone in on Joanna's neighbors, all the people that would have had easier access to her home because there's no broken windows, there's nothing. And they start to interview more and more neighbors And somebody does report that they heard a woman screaming on that night. So it is believed that somebody did hear Joanna screaming because it was right around the right time. But you know what it's like to live in an apartment or a flat. Like you hear a lot of weird things. And a lot of times if the noises don't continue, I mean, you don't know if a lady saw a spider. It just, it doesn't always strike you as an emergency if you hear somebody. Well, I I was thinking that too. There's a lot of different reasons that would make somebody scream. You can get scared. Maybe it's a sexual situation or, or maybe it is violence. But I mean, there are so many different things that it could be that I think people just maybe drown that out or don't think much of it. I mean, I've lived in apartments and you hear all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, you almost become desensitized to other people's noises. Like, I'm not going to say anything because I'm just used to hearing stuff I shouldn't hear. Absolutely. So one of the neighbors was a 32-year-old man named Vincent Tabak. And the police thought that he was very helpful. He was an engineer who had lived in a neighboring flat to Joanna for 18 months with his girlfriend. And he happened to be out of town in Amsterdam when the police called him, but he was willing to give them information about living there, what he knew about Joanna, all of that stuff. And he told the police that he suspected that Christopher Jeffries had something to do with Joanna's disappearance. And Christopher Jeffries was actually the landlord. Oh, this is getting interesting. Yeah. So the police are interested in this. They're like, let's look into this guy. It's some kind of lead. So they look into Christopher Jeffries and they find out that he actually has an extensive criminal history. And so they go ahead and arrest him uh, while they're looking for other evidence against him. They arrested him on December 30th. And I believe it was largely due to what Vincent had said to them. Wow, that's pretty significant. 
Yeah. So the police were hopeful that they might have the right guy in custody. And they did end up sending out a senior detective named Constable Karen Thomas to meet with Vincent. And she went to see him while Detective Thomas was interviewing Vincent, hoping to get as much information about Christopher Jeffries possible. Her intuition was going crazy. And she just felt like there was something not quite right. One of the reasons why she felt that way was because Vincent had started to ask a lot of questions about the forensic aspect. Oh, that's very telling. It is. He wanted all the deep about the forensic work. And Detective Thomas felt like he was just a little bit too interesting. It sounds like it. Wow. Good for her, though. I'm glad that she picked up on that. A woman's intuition. I'm telling you, there's nothing better. (laughs) It's a gift and a curse. It is. So the detectives keep doing their work. They're working their tails off trying to find a reason to keep Christopher Jeffries in jail. But they just couldn't find anything. And it, it became clear that Vincent maybe needed to be looked at more than Christopher. Vincent was continually interviewed. And I think he could kind of feel that things were switching a little bit, but he did reluctantly give police a DNA sample. It sounds like they kind of led him to believe that they just needed it to rule him out and that this was something they were doing with all the neighbors. But this would actually be his downfall because the DNA implicated him. Joanna's body did have DNA and it, it matched Vincent. Well, no wonder the bastard was asking about the forensics. He knew that he left DNA behind. That rat bastard. He had to have known. And to make matters worse, Joanna's DNA was found inside of Vincent's car. Wow. Vincent kept pointing back to Christopher Jeffries, though. He, this was his meal ticket. He was just going to blame everything on the landlord. He even went as far to say that Christopher Jeffries had borrowed his car before he went on a trip. So he truly was trying to frame Christopher Jeffries. But finally, on January 20th, 2011, he was arrested. Well, thank God, because this is just crazy. He's trying to actually frame his landlord and people do the craziest things. But that just blows my mind. I wonder why he thought that was a good idea because you know the dna always gets you in the end and you're asking about it i I don't know he doesn't sound like he's a very smart guy to me but that's just me but anyway i think what i find very frustrating about this case is that vincent he spoke very little about what actually happened to joanna in her last moments he wasn't interested in talking about that but what we do know is that vincent knocked on joanna's door and entered her flat shortly after she returned home with her pizza on December 17th. They had never met before, so he was a stranger to her. But, I mean, I assume that she had seen him around because they were neighbors. Just because you haven't met your neighbors, I mean, you know, you're going to be like, oh, that's the weird guy, Vinny, from down the street. I don't know if they (laughs) called him Vinny, but you know what I mean. And so that's kind of scary. And what happens next We don't know the exact order of events, but we do know that Vincent strangled Joanna to death. And she suffered 43 injuries as she fought for her life. And Vincent, at six foot, four inches tall, probably overpowered her very easily. It's also believed that Joanna died 
probably within 20 seconds of Vincent grabbing her neck to strangle her. In that time period, she fought like hell because she had those injuries from trying to save her own life. Vincent stripped Joanna's socks off and he kept one to himself, which I think is super weird. He also took the pizza she had purchased. He never explained why he took a sock or her pizza, but I think that's super weird. I mean, did he eat the pizza? Did he keep the sock as a trophy? I mean, I'm not making a joke about this. This is weird. This is strange to me. It just seems really random, but maybe he didn't want them to talk to the pizza place or... It definitely reminds me of some of the other cases we've covered. There's a kind of an overlap between foot fetishes and death fetishes. Oh, for sure. And we are very sympathetic and are very pro-victim and want to be advocates. But we don't mind mocking these pathetic, despicable, pizza-stealing death fetishers, murderers, okay? So anyway, what happens next is... It's sad and bizarre. He carries Joanna's body to the trunk of his car. And with Joanna in his trunk, he goes on a shopping trip, okay? And then he sends his girlfriend a text and says, I'm bored. I mean, what the hell? That makes me angry. It makes me angry, too. He took a woman's life. And he's bored. And he's bored. About an hour later, he dumped Joanna's partially clothed body in the fetal position alongside the snowy road. And within 24 hours, that bastard was out drinking and celebrating the holidays with his friends. Can you believe that? That's disgusting. I hate him. And during the trial, the prosecutor pointed out how cold and calculated and also how intelligent Vincent was. He even remarked that he believed that Vincent covered his tracks pretty well. But it was the continual lying that caught up with him eventually because he had to tell his story over and over and over again. And because of that, he started to slip up with the details, eventually saying he couldn't remember anything when pressed in the three-week trial. So I thought that was interesting. Also during the trial, Vincent told the jury that he had accidentally killed Joanna when he tried to stifle her scream after he entered the apartment. But the jury is kind of like me, and it's like, yeah, we don't believe you. You're I don't believe him either. He, I'm glad the prosecutor pointed out that he's a liar and continued to lie. He obviously lied about Christopher Jeffries. He lied to his girlfriend about what he was doing and all of those things. But I find it really, really creepy that he just won't give any details or tried his best to not give any details about what happened there. I think that a lot of things probably happened when he was alone with Joanna that haven't been revealed. I tend to agree with that. And I think that's sad for the family and the friends because a lot of people, and I would be one of those people, I would need to know. I would want the details of what happened. I would want to know the motives. But like you mentioned, Vincent has never given any details about his motives for killing Joanna. So, you know, like the rest of the world, we kind of have to fill in the blanks. And an important blank to fill is the fact that Vincent had an addiction to violent death fetish pornography. Mike, drop. So the police gathered evidence on Vincent for Joanna's upcoming trial, and that's when that deep, dark secret emerged. Computer analysts found a treasure trove of violent pornographic videos that depicted women being strangled while they were forced to have sex. Carl Coleman much? This is typical of a death fetish predator, so I think he fit in this category. Oh, for sure. And... The authorities deemed 
that this was Vincent's secret life because they discovered that when Vincent's girlfriend was away for any reason, he immediately started meeting up with prostitutes. Wow. The stories that those prostitutes could tell would be pretty interesting, I'm sure. I think so, too. I think he was probably very violent with them. And it makes me wonder if he'd ever killed one before. So that's something interesting to think about, too. But the police did feel that Joanna's murder was linked to all of those actions. They felt like it was likely a sex crime. And it was just an escalation to where his secret life had been going all along. It's, you know, fantasy spilling over into reality. But you're going to be shocked where this is going, Alicia, because the judge, you know what he decided? He decided to forbid that any of that evidence could be used in the trial. You know, I want to hate him for that. But when I was researching this case, I did read that the potential reason for that was that he didn't want there to be a risk of any sort of appeals for those things that someone could argue they were loosely related. That makes sense. I'm still shocked by that, but I guess what you're saying makes sense. But I mean, the truth is, is that Vincent had this collection of violent porn and it was all violent porn surrounding strangled women. And they were women that were bound. It was women that were gagged. It was women with tape over their mouth. It was women being yelled at, degraded, women being controlled by men. There was even this film of two women who were rolled up in fabric and presumed to be dead bodies in the trunk of a car. That is damning. It absolutely is. Disgusting. And police felt that Vincent had studied these films to determine how long and how hard someone would need to be held by the neck in order to be strangled to death. That reminds me so much of death fetish pornography because they really show those parts of the scene where it's like close-ups of strangling someone or like, I think these videos had to be pretty graphic if they felt like he was studying them to figure out how to murder. Well, and I wonder if they weren't in part some of Carl Coleman's films. I know I keep bringing him up, but there are some very similar films that he made of rolling people up in carpets. I've seen a couple of them and throwing them in the back of a truck or in the back of a car. So it made me wonder. You're right. And all yeah. of his, like the majority of his films have to do with strangling. Yeah. I wonder. That's interesting. I didn't think about that until now, but that's so true. And in addition to all these films, the detectives also were really curious about these three images that they found. So these weren't videos. They were just like still images. And the images were of a woman, like with exactly Joanna's body type, exactly her hair color, which was blonde. And this woman had a pink bra on. And it really looked like Joanna could have just been the girl. Joanna actually was wearing almost an identical set of undergarments when her body was found. And what the detectives noticed was that the way that Joanna was positioned with the same look and bra, her bra had been pulled up like at the same angle. And it almost looked like Vincent may have posed Joanna like this girl in the photo. I assume this girl in the photo was like unconscious, like slumped over with her clothing pulled up uh, because, you know, that's how they found Joanna. And so for them to look so similar and then even worse, Vince's DNA that they had found on her body, it was actually there on her chest. So 
The police believe that Vincent was posing her body after death, maybe moving her clothing around and looking at her body, and that this, um, you know, really could have been a sexual motivation. That is really sick and twisted and horrible. I feel so terrible for Joanna's family. I feel terrible for her family, too, to have to have these details come out that point to this sexual leaning. It's hard for anybody to stomach. And I I feel so bad that her family had to discover this through the detectives going through Vincent's computer. But it is really, really compelling to me because on the morning of Joanna's murder, Vincent had accessed these photos, these pornographic videos. Wow. How many times, Alicia, have we heard that? I've lost count. And how many cases where these death fetish bastards go on to murder somebody and either the night before or the day of, they're looking at this garbage and that helps motivate them to commit these crimes. I don't think it's a coincidence. I really don't. And this is even worse. But before he was apprehended, Vincent's web history shows that he was searching for news articles about Joanna's death. And he would read, read, read about Joanna's death. And then he would flip back to his violent strangle films of women. And he was going back and forth. He would read a Joanna article and then watch a video. And then read a Joanna article and watch a video. That is disgusting and makes me so incredibly angry. I think that it's hard not to feel like he was reliving that crime. And pleasuring himself at the same time. We don't have cameras in his apartment, but it's not hard to imagine that happening. It's just, it's unbelievable to me that there isn't more coverage about these fetishes and how linked they are to murder. It's really just sickening. And I love that the prosecutor that was involved, Nigel Lickley, he stated that on December 17th, Vincent graduated from being a viewer of violent images to a participant. Okay, I love that. And that is terminology that I think I'm going to start using with the fetishers. Graduated from fantasy to reality. Yeah, it's not just Alicia and LaDonna saying this. There are legal professionals that feel this way. There are prosecutors that are noticing. Raphael's taking notes right now. Just saying. Vincent has all these videos and a few pictures that I would classify as death fetish on his computer. But there is something even worse there because the police did go on to find 100 indecent images of children. What? I'm going to say this again. The police found 100 indecent images of children. So we're talking pornographic images of children alongside Vincent's death fetish pornography. Again, another one here that's also into child pornography. Wow. Wow. Shocked, not shocked. Alicia, this is becoming something that's very common. We're seeing this more and more and more and more. I think we've got to dive in and find out more about the connection. Yeah, and if I had to take a whack at it right now, I would say that these death fetish predators are... If there's a word that is worse than coward, like I view them as these lowly, pathetic cowards. They are so pathetic that the only kind of woman they want to have sex with is a dead woman because they have no, no swagger. They're not going to be able to get any woman to be interested in them. They are so cowardly 
that they're going to prey on the dead. I agree with you. And I almost think that we've got a season two brewing over this. I mean, I'm not giving out any spoilers here, but that's my leaning here because this is equally awful. And we're seeing it again and again and again with Death Fetish. I'm not sure we can walk away from it, Alicia. I don't think we can either. I just want to point out that we did not expect to find this in our research, but it just comes up almost every week. It comes up again. Yeah, I'm going to do a deep dive into this. I I think there's more here. So stay tuned. Yeah, so they found all of this stuff on his computer. I'm sure that they were quite repulsed with this collection. His trial did end and he thankfully was found guilty of murdering Joanna and Vincent got a life sentence with a minimum of 20 years. And he was found guilty by a majority of 10 to 2. So most of the people in the jury were like, whoa, this guy's guilty AF. I don't see why it was 10 to 2 and it wasn't all 12, but that's a different, I guess, a different topic. But I'm glad they got him. Well, he had his little pity story that it was an accident. that He just had to stop her from screaming. Yeah, wasn't that the excuse the submarine guy had too? Yeah, it's like, well, what were you doing to make her scream? Lies, lies, lies. In 2015, Vincent also did plead guilty to possessing those indecent images of children, and he did get an extra 10 more months imprisonment added to his sentence. This was done because the prosecutor felt that it was important to have this included in a criminal history. He knew that he already had a life sentence, but he just wanted everyone to know that this man is into child porn as well. I applaud the prosecutor, and I agree with that. I think the world needed to know that he was also into kitty porn. I mean, that's sick. It is sick. And I wanted to point out that he is serving that sentence at HMP Wakefield. That's the facility that he's at. And I'm telling you that because I think this could be another pen pal for us. I want to see what he has to say for himself. I want him to admit that he's a death fetish predator and that there were motivations there because I'm calling BS on this accidental killing. And I hate he wouldn't give any details. I think that there were some death fetish things going on here and I want him to admit to it. So I think we should write I'm breaking out the pen and the paper now. Maybe in a future episode, we can talk about that correspondence if he chooses to write us back. But until then, I just want to thank everybody for listening. I think this was a really important episode. I want to encourage our listeners to continue to remember and honor the victims, not just of death fetish, but of any murder. And we're going to continue to do this work to call out the people who are potential murderers in the death fetish community. I mean, Alicia, I think that this work is so important and critical to educate people to help keep them safe. And so I just encourage people to keep tuning in. We're going to keep fighting the good fight and doing everything that we can to put a stop to death fetish. Yeah, it's got to go and we can't do it alone. So please link arms with us. You know, if you have a moment, go over to our website, which is deepdarksecretspodcast.com. Click on the advocacy link. And just do us a favor and scroll down to the middle of the page. You'll see a petition there. The petition is something that we'd like you to sign so that we can show legislators that there are a lot of us that care about eradicating this community and about enforcing the federal obscenity laws that would keep these producers from creating this content that makes men like Vincent 
feel like it's okay to follow through with actions like this. So if you have a moment, please help us out in that way and just keep being good people in your communities. Keep shining your own special light wherever you are. Just remember, keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash deep dark secrets. Sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode.